0: Mark Driscoll, Ted Haggard, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Robbie Zacharias, Carl Lentz, Jerry Falwell Jr., Brian Houston, Matt Chandler. We live in an apocalyptic age, a time when the bright lights of national media news have exposed the sins of some Christian pastors and leaders especially. The names just named are some of the most influential evangelical leaders and pastors who have fallen into sin in recent years. Some sinned sexually, some verbally, others caused or covered financial, emotional, or spiritual abuse, but all of them failed to bring what was in the dark into the light. And for many, it cost them everything. It must be said from the start that none of their sins are of equal weight or of equal consequence. Uh, What just transpired with Matt Chandler is not the same as what happened with Robbie Zacharias. Uh, It must also be said that their sins are not ones which I or any of us could fall into. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 12, Woe to him who thinks he stands, lest he falls. But for the grace of God, so go I. So this isn't a self righteous guilt trip or finger wagging. No. I've never known the pressures of leading a highly publicized ministry, and nor are their sins unforgivable by a God who loves them and their victims with a love more than we could possibly imagine. It must also be said that for every one celebrity falling from grace, there are a thousand more faithful pastors who are shepherding their flock week in and week out for decades. Thank God for the Pastor Alvaro Pena's and the Pastor Roberto's of the world. Yet, the sin of these men have left a stain on the American church. And the prevalence of sin does not allow for us to lower the bar of sin. Christian pastors, especially. AA, the Christian Support Group, says, we are only as sick as our secrets. Only through the warm light of open confession do we find the life and healing we need. And it's a principle of the spiritual life that what's done in the dark will come to the light. As sure as what goes up must come down, or what you reap is what you sow, what happens in the dark comes to the light. It's not a promise to believe or a command to obey. It is a law about how the world works. If many of these pastors and leaders stood before us today, I hope they would say, oh, how I wish I had lived in the light. Good morning, friends. My name is Hunter Hambrick. Welcome to Providence Bible Church. Uh <laughs> How about that for an intro? Just go ahead and sit back, relax, sip on your dark roast, and uh, we're in for a ride this morning. We are in a 13 week series on the book of Ephesians. Go ahead and turn there with me if you've not already. We started this beautiful letter a few weeks ago, back in July. And chapters one through three talk about how we have been made a part of this beautiful family of God. It talks about God, it talks about us, and it talks about who we are to be in light of our new identity in Christ. Can everybody say that with me? In Christ. Christ. Chapters four through six discuss the duty of believers to let that behavior align with their belief in all of life. Uh, Chapters four through six move us from orthodoxy, right doctrine, to orthopraxy, right behavior. John Stott says that chapters four and five revolve around the integration of Christian experience, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. A new identity, new belief, and new behavior. These three themes are our focus this morning. Jason and Matt covered chapter four the past couple weeks, which emphasized unity as a key characteristic in the church. Now in chapter five, Paul turns to the topic of moral holiness, not being better than other people, but being set apart for a sacred purpose for God. In doing so, he argues that purity is every bit essential to the identity of the church as unity. In these 12 verses, Paul confronts his reader with three important questions that I think are meant for us today. Number one, who are you imitating? Number two, who are you worshiping? And number three, with whom are you partnering? Who are you imitating? Who are you worshiping? And with whom are you partnering? If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, I'd like to preach a message called Live in the Light live in the light. Pray with me. Father God, thank you that you are in this room this morning. If your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. Thank you that you are the light of the world and that because of your love you have for us in Jesus, there's absolutely nothing we could do or anything that could be done to us to disrupt your love. Yet because of your love, you called us, you've appointed us, you've commissioned us as a holy people set apart for your purposes. Help us to live even as you are in Christ the light. Help us to be marked by true righteousness and true holiness. Help us to be salt and light, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We pray this prayer and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Living in the light as God's dearly loved children. This is both the challenge and the possibility of Ephesians 5, 1 through 12. Matt Champlin said last week in an amazing message, highly recommend going back to listen to it if you've not already. He said, light is who you are so look like you. I love that. That's what Paul wanted for the Ephesians, and it's what the Holy Spirit wants for us today. He shows us as much in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'm not sure if any of you have seen this uh, YouTube video that made its rounds a couple years ago of the dad and the son sitting on the couch. It's absolutely hilarious if you've never watched it before. Uh, but there's this, like, 18-month-old son, and he's basically having a full-on conversation with his dad. Like, he's mimicking him, he's gesturing, he's making words, and the dad is just going with it. Like, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, I highly recommend looking it up at some point. Uh, what I love about this video is it shows us, like, father, like son. And this is the picture Paul paints us. It's not that we are to be God. Uh, That was the serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. It is that we are to be like God in all the ways that that is possible. We are called to take on the traits and character of our father. Unfortunately, in our culture, we live in a world that wants to be like God, but in all the ways we can't. (laughs) With the invention of this little guy, we are able to think that we can be omniscient, all-knowing. Don't know the answer? Just ask Google. (laughs) Omnipresent, everywhere, all the time. Just log on to FaceTime or announce your presence on Facebook. Omnipotent, all-powerful. I mean, imagine just going 100 years back in time and telling your your grandparents and, 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 and your ancestors that with a click of a button, you could have food, you could have a car, heck, you could have a human being show up at your doorstep in a minute. Shout out to DoorDash, Carvana, and Tinder. Hello. In fact, much of our frustration and anxiety today, I think, is rooted in the fact that we think we can be all knowing. We think we can be all present, and we think we can be all powerful. All things that are exclusively reserved for God. What is available to us, though, as dearly loved children, is an invitation to imitation, an invitation to follow the example of our big brother Jesus. How can we be like God, you may ask? Well, the answer is simple be like Jesus. If we want to imitate the Father, then we must love like the Son, who loved us and laid down His life on our behalf. Imitating God is possible, but it's only done by walking in love. And walking in love happens only when we live as loved children. Catholic psychologist and spiritual writer David Benner says this, Christ's identity was defined by His relationship to His Father. This was who He was. His whole life flowed out from this, What he did was not the basis of his identity, but rather pointed to who he was. At his baptism, Jesus heard a divine declaration of love from him as the son with whom God was well-pleased. Jesus never seemed to doubt this. His relationship to the Father was the basis of how he experienced and understood himself. Nothing was more certain for him than the love of the Father. Can the same be said of you? It can be. Because Jesus went to the cross in your place, not just dying for you, but instead of you, you too can live love. I can live love. Our only alternative, of course, is to live as children of lust. Verses 3 through 6 say, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are strong words from Paul to the church. Some of the strongest in the New Testament, in fact. For many of us who grew up in the evangelical ghetto of purity culture, clobber verses like these can leave a sting on our souls. But maybe that sting has less to do with Christian culture and more to do with our country's culture. I mean, after all, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, what could possibly be more American vices than those? Sexual promiscuity, moral corruption, material greed. These three things define our way of life in this country, and we could refer to them as sins of self indulgence. Their meanings are important, and I want to discuss them, these sins of self indulgence, before we move on to sins of speech. The first vice here is sexual promiscuity. It's the Greek word porneia from where we get our modern word pornography. It includes any and all non-hetero forms of marital fidelity. It's pretty popular these days to pick on Paul for being puritanical and archaic in his teaching. But if you think Paul's being strict, you should hang out with your boy Jesus. Because he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 through 30, if anyone even looks upon a woman with lust, it would be better that he pluck out his eye and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It'd be better to lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Sometimes we dismiss what Jesus says there as a mere metaphor, but if it's a metaphor, what's the meaning? (laughs) The meaning is, don't let there be even a hint of sexual immorality. Sexual fidelity in the way of Jesus was not exactly a popular option in pagan culture, nor is it in ours. Uh, Demosthenes, a Greek politician and orator from the 4th century B.C., says this, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. How charming. Any women? Like, yeah, I like that. Let's sign up for that. That's good. Uh, Today, the challenge of sexual wholeness and holiness has grown, if not in complexity, certainly in degree, Many of us in the room today are the products of a pagan past. We live with regret over the deeds we did in the dark, in our BC, our before Christ days. Other of us grew up in the hyper-conservative church where hardline moralism and performative religion were weaponized in order to suppress and shame our sexual desires. Some of us have remarried or were previously married. Others grew up in divorced or single-parent homes, some feel the pool of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Or perhaps as a single person, you feel the sting of physical and relational loneliness. Some are bound and crippled by sexual addiction and compulsion. Others of us are married but miserable. Not me, by the way. I, l- I love my wife. <laughs> amazing. Still, some have zero interest in sexual intimacy all along because of past pain and trauma. In a word, all of us are affected by sexual brokenness. And yet, not in spite of this brokenness, but actually because of it, I would argue that the biblical vision of marriage is between one man and one woman for life is the best offer on tap in our culture today. This is a controversial claim to make, but the reasoning is simple enough. True, healthy human sexuality is rooted and grounded in the self-giving love of God. True love requires another who you can love and care for more than yourself. True sexual dignity, fulfillment, and freedom is found in dying to self. Follow Paul's argument with me, if you will. Our culture appeals to self-fulfillment and self-expression as reason for any and all sexual exploits, but only in the context of self-giving and self-sacrificial love do we find a sexual ethic strong enough to both please God and satisfy our deepest longings. Said simpler, lust means self-indulgence, but love means self-sacrifice. This is what Christ, our single Jewish rabbi, did for us as he died naked on a bloody cross in our place. His body was broken as a sacrifice for our sexual wholeness. Self-giving, generative love. This is what Christ, our bridegroom, did for us, the bride, the church. And this is what saints do. For each other. Next up on our list is moral corruption. Uh, This word is often translated as impurity. It's very closely associated with sexual sin in the scriptures and it gives a sense of ongoing internal moral corruption. It's often used in the context of condemning hypocrisy. Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. The third vice here refers to material greed or covetousness, it speaks to the insatiable, uncontrollable appetite for more. There's a sense of ceremonial impurity involved here as well. Jesus says in Mark 7, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Pornea, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greediness, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy. I just came to encourage you this morning. Slander, <laughs> arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Sin flows from the heart. And it's easy for us to point to the lust and sexual immorality out there, but how about the greediness going on in here? I think for most of us in the room, we are more in danger of our hearts being seduced by the idols of mammon and luxury than we are by a sex worker on the street. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's what greed is ultimately. It's an idol which wants our worship. Therefore, the logic makes sense, right? Anyone who practices Sexual promiscuity, moral corruption, or material greed is an idolatry. Whether it's Artemis of the Ephesians, our own image on Instagram, or this quarter's financial earnings, all of us are in danger of bowing the knee to a king and a kingdom different than King Jesus. David Foster Wallace, the literary writer, says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth worship your body in beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. How are we doing so far, church? <laughs> we doing good? I, I need mean, to come up for air a little bit, take a little stretch break. Tears to that. These are the sins of self-indulgence. Next, Paul talks about the sins of Speech. There are three here. Look quickly at verse 4 with me. He mentions shameful obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. Taken all together, these three terms basically mean the same thing and refer to a sort of pornography of the mouth. Again, out of the abundance of the heart, sin flows. Shameful obscenity, moronic talking, and dirty joking. This is the stuff of middle school. And high school. college, and sadly for some of us, young adulthood as well. I wonder, when was the last time you took serious inventory of your speech? Have you gotten a little loose with your lips, a little lax with your words? We must take account, not because we're legalists, but because we're loved. Such speech just doesn't look right on a child of God. A good litmus test for me personally is to ask particularly when it comes to uh, coarse joking, am am I saying this just to get a laugh? Do I need this person to think well of me? And if I think I make this joke, then it will kind of ease the tension between us. Because if I have, that's kind of a key that I've forgotten my identity is already loved, already accepted and already chosen by God. Does what I say have to build up or is it tearing down others at their expense? Paul's solution for sins of self-indulgence and sins of speech, oddly enough, is thanksgiving. It's a counterintuitive thing, but what thankfulness does is it decenters us from the story of our lives. It moves us from thinking about, as self-indulgence does, what can I get out of this to how can I give God thanks for what he's given me? Alan Noble shares a helpful but pretty counterintuitive illustration about how to combat the desire to take or say more than we should. Follow with me here. He's talking about lust specifically. He says, when I was younger and I saw an attractive woman, I had a few responses. I would lust. I would look away from her to avoid the temptation, or I might feel a kind of bitterness knowing that her beauty was not mine to enjoy and never would be. In each case, the terminus of my experience of her beauty was my head, and the responses were usually unloving to the woman and dishonoring to God, and it made me miserable. Then I adopted a prayer. Dear God, thank you for her beauty, and that it is not mine to participate in. The double movement of this prayer allows me to rightly appreciate beauty, give God the glory for his creation, affirm the goodness of her beauty, and de-center myself in the experience of beauty how powerful is that? Life's not about you, friend. And that's what idolaters fail to see. These sons of disobedience have made life all about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Others can't be seen as bearing God's image. Instead, they're only objects for my consumption. I want to say, though, this is a lifestyle of total sin not just one-off disobedience. If you've lusted lately or cursed in anger or obsessed over your stuff, then join the club. I know I have. Christians are sinners being made saints. We're all on a spiritual journey. We're all in process. But I won't deceive you with empty words this morning. Those who choose the kingdom of self permanently over the kingdom of Christ and God, whether now or in the future, God's wrath is surely coming upon them. Because, church, there are two types of people in this world. One, those who are in Christ, upon whom God has already poured his wrath once and for all. It is finished, and they are adopted into his family. Or there are those outside of Christ, upon whom now or later the wrath of God will come. Why? Why? Because their illegitimate lifestyle proves that they're illegitimate children. Are we children of love? Children of lust? The best way to find out is by living as children of light. Verses 7 through 12 say, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak the things that they do in secret. Paul challenges us in verse 11 to live in the light ourselves, and he goes further. He, he wants us to expose the light on others. In verse 7, he says, we're not even to partner with such people. And I think this obviously does not mean total disassociation with non-believers. That'd be impossible, right? We'd have to leave this world or become Amish, and I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. Instead, he's talking about stiff-arming Christians, so-called, who willingly, unrepentingly live disobedient lives. Again, an illegitimate lifestyle proves their illegitimacy as children. You shall know them by their fruits. They're not in the family. So the most loving thing I could possibly do is shine a light on their disobedience and let God's kindness lead them to repentance. Shameful secret deeds of darkness dishonor God, harm our souls, and bring shame to the community. Paul says, in effect, don't do these things and stay away from those who do. The questions then become, how do we confront a sinning brother or sister, and why are we so hesitant to do so? I know I am. I don't want to confront someone for their issues going on. Often, I think we don't confront simply because we're aware of sin in our own lives. We don't want to come across as hypocrites or maybe we just don't want to offend unnecessarily an act holier than thou some of us are conflict avoidant others you just don't care you're like well they had it coming to them anyways so or maybe we think only god can judge them who am i to stand in that place all those are perfectly normal and natural reactions to say but i just i just want to note this every single one of those objections deals more with your comfort than their well being is that loving is that sacrificial? Is that how Christ loved us and gave himself up for us? What is needed instead is a spirit of gentleness, grace, and guardedness. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, family language, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. This is so important. If we don't watch ourselves and those close to us in community, our community will be known more for sexual immorality, impurity, and greed than for goodness, righteousness, and truth, all the things we love and are excited about. And if that ever happens here at Providence, the way it has in the larger evangelical culture, then we need holiness to move at the speed of light in our congregation. Do we have any uh, parents of middle schoolers here this morning? Don't be shy. Raise your hand. The prayer team is going to anoint each of you with oil (laughs) after service in just a few minutes. No, uh, middle schoolers are the best. I was a middle school pastor for years, and uh, I have to imagine that parenting a middle schooler has to be tough. Uh, At least it must have been for my parents. Uh, Apart from dealing with the general rebellious spirit that accompanies the teenage years and puberty and hormones and acne and moodiness, uh, my parents had to deal with something especially difficult, which was getting me out of bed in the morning. (laughs) My uh, wife can testify I'm what you call a deep sleeper. So there are some of us who, you know, we kind of stir at the softest light or sound and kind of wakes us up. And there are others of us who could sleep through an earthquake. Uh, Anybody like that in the room? Anybody else? Yes, deep sleepers. Shout out to you. Uh, When I was in middle school, I had my cell phone volume alarm on max. I had an analog clock alarm on the other side of the room, so I had to, like, get out of bed and get it, and then my sister's radio in the room next door. And nothing. I wouldn't wake up. I slept like a Calvinist. It was just it was amazing. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal, except uh, after a while, I started making my sister and I late, and Mama Hamburg wasn't having it. Uh, her solution, a pretty effective one, albeit, was to stomp up the stairs, run into my room, open the door, flip on the lights, and yell my name at the top of her lungs. Hunter, Paul, it's time to go to school. Now, why did my mom do this? Did she just love getting a sore voice in the morning? No, she woke me up because she longed to see my continued growth and well-being. This morning, Providence, with a mother's heart, The Holy Spirit longs to flip on the lights in our lives. He is shouting our names. Saints, beloved, my children, you're loved. You can live in the light. What do you have to fear? Perfect love, the love of the Father laid down in the Son, expressed in the Holy Spirit, cast out fear. You are a child of love. You're a child of light. You're a child of God. You can live in the light. Jason taught on this concept a couple years ago, but I wanted to remind you of it today. It's a tool called the Jahari Window, and it essentially helps us pay attention to our own lives. Uh, it's broken down into four quadrants, and the one in the top left there is called the open self. This is basically your public persona, right? I see some of you snapping photos. We're going to hand out copies on your way out this morning, so you'll, you'll have your own. But this is the stuff about you that everyone else knows, right? So, like, I'm Hunter Hambrick, I'm white, I work at Providence, and I'm married to Kara. No secrets, right? The second quadrant in the lower left is the hidden self. This is information about you that you know but others don't know. So, for example, yesterday, um, no one knows this, I went to Bolero in Cherry Creek to check it out for our Young Adults Hangout, which is coming up. Saturday, October 1st from 6 to 8 p.m., and you should definitely come hang out with us if you're between <laughs> the ages of 18 and 33. Shame, shameless plug. So I did that. The top left is your blind self, This is, or the top right is your blind self. This is information about you that you don't know, but others do know. This is the stuff that, about me that, that I don't know that I need others in my life to confront me with. Uh, The last quadrant in the bottom right is the unknown self. This is information about you that neither you know nor others know. And what I love about the Jahari window is that this is the only place where God dwells. Because God is the only one who dwells in all four spaces. He knows about you. He knows what others know about you. And he knows what only you know about you. In April of this year, I had a meeting with some of the closest people in my life. Jason Jans, Juan Pena, Josh and Katie Larson, Cynthia Lopez, and Kara Hambrick. This was the culmination of a three year long mentoring process I went through as a part of my degree at Denver Seminary. In the course of this particular meeting, I opened up to these friends about the darkness I found in myself over the past three years. My defensiveness, my need for control, my perfectionism, my struggle with shame, I also confess my narcissistic tendencies, my hidden desires to become a successful, well-admired Christian leader. If I'm honest, I wanted to be like some of the leaders I named earlier. That's a picture of me and my buddies with Mark Driscoll back in 2014. A lot has changed since then, especially my long hair but in the company of those closest to me. Some of the people in this city who love me the most, I was able to say out loud the one true thing about myself that I was afraid to say. Hi, my name is Hunter, and I want to be a celebrity pastor. The tears flowed. I've not cried that way in a long, long time. I named my crippling fear of not living a life of significance for God. The mask came off. My hidden self, my performative self was forced into the healing light of loving community and I have never felt more free. I don't know what it is for you this morning. Maybe you're gripped by sexual desire. Maybe you're chronically consumed by career, self-harm, kids, good grades, drinking, or the regret of your past. It could be anything. One way to know whether or not that thing has power over you is if you're not even willing to say it out loud. If you can't, that's probably it. But I want to tell you this morning, if you're in Christ, then you have nothing to hide. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to lose. God only knows. He already knows. Who are you fooling by hiding it in the dark? He loves you. You're his child. You can live in the light. I won't lie, though. This process can be scary. Tears may flow. Confession is painful. Letting your hidden self become your open self may cost you. But I promise you this, sin confessed now doesn't cost as much as sin concealed later. I want to invite the worship team up as we worship this morning. And on your way out, ushers will hand you a copy of the Jahari window. There are questions on there for you to discuss and reflect upon as an individual or maybe in your community group. And let me be clear, I'm not advocating for trauma bonding here, all right? Providence, we don't believe in sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with your small group, all right? That's inappropriate. I just want to know, do you have a regular in-person system of accountability and exposure to the sin in your life and the insecurities in your life? If you don't, then you're in danger. God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. If we're truly to become a community of love, a light on the hill, a city that cannot be hidden, then we must constantly be bringing these hidden parts of our lives into the light. It's not enough just to come to church and quietly confess your sins to God. Oh, he knows that He'll forgive me. No, if you want to be healed, you have to bring it into the light. It's the only place where healing happens. Satan, my friends, deals in deception and darkness. Whether it's sin or insecurity, it doesn't matter. He wants it secret, but there's power in bringing our full selves into the light. Christ, the light of the world, wants to shine on you this morning. Let him do so. Stand with me as we respond and worship to God.